Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hi, everybody. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Jonna Gherkin. I got that right. <laughs> and she actually, when I did a little bit of research on her, she has a title that I've never heard before, and it's Deputy Global Transitions Manager. I'm pretty interested to find out what, what exactly that means, but I'm also more interested to find out about her advocacy work with SWE, the Society for Women Engineers, and how public speaking factors into her work. Thank you for tuning in, or to, thank you for coming to Teach the Geek Interviews, Jonna. Thank you for having me. Man, I'm, I'm gonna get that name right by the end of this, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> I know I can't be the first person to butcher your name. <laughs> so where did your, it, so I, I, I mentioned that I did a bit of, of research on you and I saw that you studied industrial engineering. Where did mm -hmm. that interest come from? Uh, well, that's an interesting story. I actually wanted to be an architect at first. Um, I had an uncle who was an architect and I thought it was really cool and interesting. And I did a summer program during uh, my, uh, my high school career to um, a summer at an architecture program. And while everyone else had these amazing designs and really cool concepts and ideas, I had a really strong, well-designed box that was very structurally sound and took it, you know, was considerate of the um, people who would be living in it more than anything. And Somebody whispered in my ear, and I, I wish I could remember who, said, you know, maybe engineering would be better for you. So I actually ended up going into engineering, and industrial engineering was because I wanted something that was more hands-on, out working with people, improving processes and products. So that really fit me better than some of the other engineering fields. All right, that, that makes sense. At least someone told you early on, well, you didn't go down this path, and, you know, as an, as an architect designing a bunch of boxes. <laughs> yeah, not pretty. Yeah. Well, well built and practical, but not pretty. Not pretty, yeah, you got to have a pretty part. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mentioned that you have this title, and it's an interesting one, but I also noticed that you've been at your employer for quite some time. So what, I guess, what has kept you there for that long? Actually, yeah, March will be my 20-year anniversary at Pratt & Whitney. Um, which is a division of United Technologies. We're one of the world's leading aerospace uh, engine manufacturers uh, for both military and commercial aircraft. I've been there long, that long because of all the opportunities that we've had. Uh, I've changed roles probably just about every two years to do something different. Uh, and I've done a variety of uh, roles from engineering, operations, manufacturing, supply chain, um, it's just been really easy to move around and to get different experiences. The role I'm in right now, which you mentioned, uh, Global Transitions, we actually resource parts around the world to take advantage of quality or capacity or uh, cost. So if we, say, have a supplier who maybe is either underperforming or can't keep up with our demand and we need to bring on an additional supplier, we have to uh, make sure that they can do it well because if we give work to a new supplier who can't perform, that doesn't help us. 
So we basically manage the transition of bringing on a new supplier, making sure that they're capable, that they can produce at rates, that they can give us good quality parts, so that when we flip the switch and give them work, that they can be successful. You mentioned that you changed roles every two years. Is that something that you wanted or is that something the company asked you to do? Uh, it's more that I wanted because I get a little bored. So it's, uh, I don't like being bored and I want to do different things and I wanted to learn. Early in your career, it's, um, it's easy to kind of spend all your energy and take a lot of time and really focus on the job well and get, be successful really quickly and then get bored because well, you think you know, you think you know everything, but um, usually you don't. But so moving around a lot then helped me just kind of understand what I did like to do, but also what I didn't like to do. And so now I'd say maybe I'm moving less frequently and probably not moving as quickly in the last few roles, but um, it's definitely a great perspective to understand what's going on in the company uh, from a variety of different areas. So you come into Pratt & Whitney with a degree in industrial engineering and you have certain skills based on that degree. What skills have you picked up while you've been at Pratt & Whitney? Uh, I think the business side really picks up more uh, after you, you spend all your time in engineering school learning about you know, engineering things. We didn't spend a lot of time on the business side of things. So that's really where I had to learn a lot quickly. I ended up actually getting my MBA uh, after uh, being at the company for several years, um, which was very helpful in kind of bringing together how everything fits. Um, not every role I've been in has, has it mattered, but certainly more and more roles as you move up leadership um, involve money, finances, understanding, you know, the impacts that you're making to the business. So that's probably one of the bigger things that we've, um, that I've learned. Um, obviously there's the communication aspect of working with others and how to work in teams, both remotely uh, and without authority. So influencing without authority is really big nowadays when it comes to matrixed organizations. Um, you can't rely on having direct supervisory um, oversight over people as your um, authority. So um, working with people remotely, communication, things like this we're doing right now, wasn't possible when I started working, it didn't exist. So. Now the fact that we can have this video chat uh, and actually be productive versus having to either just do it via phone or you know the early days of email, right? We had to um, kind of take time to do that and it was very much more of a, um, a, 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 slow, a slow process whereas now emails and IMs are very quick and people kind of rely on it. You know, that's all within the last you know, 20 years. Um, that's, become a very much bigger part of our lives. Yes, for sure. You know, you mentioned something that I think is, is really important, especially nowadays, is influencing people without having authority over telling them what to do. So, you know, you said you, that's something that you've developed over time at, at Pratt & Whitney. How do you <coughs> go about doing that? Uh, you need to take a little time at the beginning and understand the people you're working with. Um, not just jump in and kind of be, here I am, this is me, this is how we're going to do it but really have a conversation about people's learning styles and communication styles and what their roles are. I mean, a lot of times the key to a great team is everyone understanding what their role is, right? What is, what, what's it, not only what's in it for them, what's in it for you? How is this going to be mutually beneficial, the folks on the team? So, um, you know, people will have maybe a defined role, a designer, an analyst, you know, the finance person, the project manager, 
But what does that really mean? What are the expectations that you want from each of those folks, not only for the deliverables that they need to do for the project, but expectations on communication, frequency of uh, interactions, um, what's considered a, um, an issue to raise, right? When is it a big enough problem that it needs to be escalated? Dealing with those things kind of upfront um, at the beginning of the team really helps set the expectations so that folks can really work to their fullest and be empowered to work well, not feel like you're micromanaging them, but also feel confident to come to you and ask for help or ask questions or for guidance. I like to be more of a, a like a guiding leader or a um, uh, empowered leader. I don't want to be on somebody's back every 10 minutes, every you know day, finding out what are you doing, where are you. I would trust that you can perform and bring back the work um, as needed, and I will only poke you if I'm not feeling that happening. And most people tend to like that. Um, certainly, folks that are maybe more experienced, um, which now I tend to work with folks more who have had enough experience where they've earned the trust and earned the right to um, to work independently. Um, but more newer employees need to understand that we're not gonna be there to hold their hand every minute, that they need to learn to be a little independent and work and then come, come with an issue when it becomes something that you can no longer solve or you really are at a crossroads and need to make a decision. Yeah, for sure. And especially with those same younger people, even older people actually, <laughs> they, need, they also need to have the sense that, they, that they're allowed to make mistakes Yes. A lot of times, if you if you're one of those people that you know you 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 want to be told what to do, it's because you're scared that if something goes wrong and you get blamed for it, you'll think, "Well, man, I should have right. been told what to do," with, as opposed to maybe taking initiative and doing something. Yeah, we're big on not blaming. It's it's never a person's fault; it's the process's fault. Where did we not have something in place to catch the mistake? Uh, not blaming a person for it. So we can only you know we're. We're in a world of innovation, right? All of our products need to keep evolving. So if we start blaming everybody for problems, we're never going to make the next step. No one's ever going to be able to feel comfortable taking a chance. So we try to not um, have that as a barrier. We try to make sure that people understand that uh, taking a chance is okay. It's just a matter of making sure we've covered all the requirements. Okay, so I, I also noticed from just doing a little bit of research on you that you're pretty heavily involved in the Society for Women Engineers. So what motivated you to become a member? So I've been a member since freshman year in college. My first year, it was the only organization I joined. Um, the school I went to was, as you one would expect, many more, many, many more males than females in the engineering program. And it was the one organization that I felt welcomed uh, and included and felt like I had some something in common uh, with the women there. So I reached out pretty much immediately. Um, and so I've been involved in there and I recently had my, let's see, it's been 27, 28 years since I've been a member now. So already past my quarter century as a member. Um, and it's really been the one constant uh, in my whole career uh, since college through now. Uh, every When I moved out of state, you know, C Connecticut is my, uh, new hometown but not where I grew up so moving to a new state where I knew nobody the SWE section was here for me with their open arms to embrace me the women in the section who worked at Pratt and Whitney were there for me to kind of help me learn the ropes um, we've become lifelong friends I've got we've had baby showers we've had weddings we've had unfortunately funerals but 
you know, the whole life cycle with uh, these, these women who I consider uh, family and sisters. Um, it's been an amazing organization to be a part of. Uh, and I was privileged to serve as the president for the uh, fiscal year 18 uh, term, which was uh, two years ago. Uh, and the organization really brings so much joy, not only to me, but to the um, members that we have all over the world, as well as all the people we're reaching every day to encourage the young women and girls to go into the engineering field. Okay. So your membership, obviously, is, it's been very important to you. It's been something that's been part of your life since freshman year of college. What exactly does a SWE membership entail? What do you get out of it? So, great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> so, SWE membership is um, really means that you support the mission. So, our mission is simple. is to get, to get more women, women and girls interested in engineering, to help them stay there, and to give back to the profession. Now that's the simple version of our mission because it's, you know, um, wanted to keep it easy for everybody. But really anyone who supports the mission is welcome. So most people will ask us, do you have to be a woman or an engineer to join? And the answer is actually no. Um, we don't care what gender you are and we don't care what profession you are as long as you support our mission. Uh, and that's what we're looking for. People who want to embrace it, um, celebrate it and help us grow the profession because we all know engineers are awesome. Um, but we don't have a really good representation across the board of women and other underrepresented minorities. We don't, ref the profession does not reflect the world around us. So how can we get more um, of those other perspectives um, into the profession? And that's what we're all about. So membership really gets you access to our huge network. We have over 40,000 members throughout the world. We have over 400 sections um, as well as uh, affiliate groups who really take the time to either get together virtually or physically several times a year to meet up and discuss and chat about different topics. We have an amazing set of conferences every year, one large one every year, the annual conference that has um, usually over 15,000 attendees. And we have five smaller conferences called locals that happen, um, actually the first one is this weekend, uh, that are happening from now through uh, March or April. And those are smaller conferences throughout the um, world. There's five in the US and there's uh, one in Europe and one in India. Those uh, help again, get people together physically. We also have an amazing uh, learning portal where we have webinars and seminars and other online uh, resources that you can use. Our research staff is top notch. We publish amazing journal, um, uh, excuse me, papers uh, and other research papers that come out to talk about what it's like to be women in engineers. In engineering, our members participate in those surveys. Um, we also get outside help on those. So the benefits really outweigh the fairly small membership cost uh, of $100 a year. Oh, wow, 100 bucks a yeah. year, that's nothing. Right. <laughs> so based on what you, you're talking about, yeah, absolutely. You know, something you, you said kind of sparked another question. You said that a part of the mission of SWE is to keep women in engineering. What yeah. are some of the causes that would make women leave? It's interesting. That was actually the platform of my uh, my term as president was about keeping people in engineering, uh, women in engineering, because retention is a huge issue. And most people would jump to the conclusion that it's because fam a family, it's because of family obligations. Um, being women, we tend to have the bulk of the burden of uh, child raising and family obligations and household management. But surprisingly, that was not the case. 
Um, the re and actually that was one of the major research papers that we've released in the last few years. That's not the case. Women are not leaving work because of family. They're leaving because of work, because of the environment that they're working in. Whether it's lack of flexibility um, in arrangements or it's unconscious bias that they're feeling all the time, or if it's the, um, the what they call the uh, tightrope bias where they're feeling pulled in two directions. I can't be a good engineer because I'm a woman or I can't be a good woman because I'm an engineer and that's rooted in some biases. There's a couple of different of those feelings and those um, barriers that are keeping these women from being successful and feeling like they can't stay and need to leave into something else. And you mentioned that I was one of, I guess, your platforms from when you were the president. So what type of solutions did you propose or implement that helped to decrease that, uh, that issue? We mainly talk about, uh, it happened to be that this uh, paper was coming out, so we use that. Um, it was really about the whole concept that just because you're no longer working in engineering doesn't mean that you're not an engineer anymore. And so the theme was uh, always connecting, always engineering. We have lots of women who I we would talk to who have left an engineering profession and would, would say, I used to be an engineer. And I'd look at them and say, what do you mean used to be? Did you give your degree back? I don't think so. I think you still have that degree. So you still are an engineer just because you're not working as one. And so we were trying to celebrate all those different types of ways that women are engineering, right, in their lives, um, at their work, in different workplaces. And it's amazing to find how many folks who are working, I'll say, quote, engineering roles, maybe they're not called that, but are really engineering roles in almost every industry, almost every company, business, area of the world, they pretty much will have an engineer on staff in some form or another. And so we were trying to celebrate that and, and bring that out so, so women will feel connected. At the same time, we launched a couple of years ago a program uh, called the STEM Reentry Program. And that is we working with all of uh, many of our corporate partners to create programs that allow women to return back to engineering roles after they've taken a break. So some of those women who did maybe take a, a step away for whatever reason, um, family or otherwise, maybe they've out, been out a few years and are a little rusty on their skills or are not sure how to jump back into the workforce. We've created these programs that are um, trial roles for maybe 12, 16 weeks or less at a company. And then at the end of that time period, it's a mutual decision between the employee and the company whether they want to come on full time or not. Uh, and it's not a um, good or a bad thing if the person decides not to, to pursue it. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they're, you know, they didn't think their family was ready or they weren't ready to come back to work or the company didn't find the right fit. But it gives a, a nice, easy way to come back into the workforce after being gone a few years. And the success of the program has been amazing. It's been growing every year. New companies add on every year and the, the um, retention rate of these women coming back into these roles has been I think 90% or it's a pretty high number I don't remember exactly it's a pretty high number how many are actually converting into these full-time roles um, and I mentioned I said the word women just now but actually it's not just women some of the programs are doing it with men as well so um, men and women who have stepped away from the workforce are using this program to get back in. Oh, wow. That's excellent. And yeah. the fact that, you know, some of the other issues that you'd mentioned that caused women to, to leave engineering, uh, I guess, lack of flexibility and unconscious bias with this program, 
I guess the companies that they're being partnered with don't have those issues per se? <laughs> I wouldn't say don't have them, but maybe you're more aware, self-aware, okay. um, and are willing to work with it. So yeah, I mean, the flexibility piece uh, for me benefits everyone. And actually, I've actually been a part-time employee for 15 years. And at the same time, been able to be successful and move on in my career because I've had uh, supervisors who have been uh, embracing of it. Um, I've been able to work the roles to make it make sense. Uh, setting expectations with employees on when I am and I'm not available, right? How the company has been behind that uh, in general, not always. Some of it is still a little supervisor dependent. But if you have to have the open mind and the ability to uh, embrace that from the beginning, um, not every company is really there yet, but more and more are. Mostly because we're doing so much work virtually anyway, it doesn't really matter where I am. How do you know where I'm calling from or taking the web meeting from? Does it really matter whether I'm sitting at my desk or at home? So the technology has helped from that perspective. As far as unconscious bias, that is a field that I think we are still exploring. Folks are still learning about. Companies are still opening their minds to. It's more than just taking a class on it and having every employee attend the training and say, yep, we're good. It really is an ongoing learning process because understanding your own biases is first and then being able to identifying them in others is second. So being able to have those conversations, which are sometimes uncomfortable, and being able to call people out in a honest and meaningful way, not in an accusatory way, but saying, hey, I, you may not have realized you've done this, but being able to have that conversation is really just the first step to making the whole culture um, less biased. Yeah, for sure. So I just from doing some research on you as well, I, I saw that you've spoken at SWE conferences as well. And of course you have, because <laughs> you've been a member this long. I'm sure you've probably, <laughs> probably done everything that there is to do when it comes to SWE. Have you always been good at public speaking? And if not, what have you done to get better at it? Oh my God, I was terrible. High school, I was embarrassing in high school. Oh, if any of my high school friends could see this, they'd be laughing right now. Um, I was terrible. I was shy, quiet. Um, nervous. I never wanted to say anything. What changed, I think, <clears throat> was actually was going to college, um, was going to this engineering program and there weren't a lot of women. Because to me, I think I was always felt I was being judged more by the women than the men. So here there weren't as many women. So I could have a fresh start in college where nobody knew me, start all over, become that new kind of person who is confident and can stand up and, and have a con uh, you know have a conversation and in college it's all those huge classes those lecture halls right those big and when you're at the bottom of that lecture hall looking up into a sea of faces it's almost like you don't care who's up there because you can't even see them mm. so you can um, I would usually have a friend when we're, we were doing a practice session have a friend stand at the back of the room and be my kind of person I looked at and would give me thumbs up and thumbs down kind of gestures to say louder, softer, or, you know, I can't hear you or whatever hand gestures. That would be how I would practice, making sure I could speak clearly and um, loudly. I also had to learn how to slow down a lot. I'm normally a very, very fast talker, which may be coming through today a little bit as well. When I get passionate and excited, I start talking much faster than most people would 
like to hear me <laughs> talking. So slowing down, being thoughtful about words, understanding how to get rid of the mm or the uh-huh, you know, those interjection words just to fill space. That took a lot of time. And the practice that I got in SWE actually helped me more in my career than vice versa. Because SWE is a safe, safe space to practice. Nobody's gonna be judging you. No one's gonna be um, <clears throat> criticizing you. Your pay is not at risk. Right? There's nearly nothing at risk because it's all volunteers who are all there for the same reason, for the mission, excuse me. <clears throat> and you'll get great constructive criticism or you'll get praise depending on what, how you did. So you learn at SWE, we take it back to the workplace. Now I have no problem giving presentations in front of thousands of people or 10 people or whatever, executives, new poor hires, it doesn't really matter. As long as I'm comfortable with the content, and what we're speaking about, then I'm good to go. Wonderful. When it comes to public speaking, do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Yeah, you know, it depends on the topic. Um, there's certain times where if I'm comfortable enough, I might just wing it. Uh, other times I actually um, gave a commencement address a couple of years ago for um, the Quinnipiac School of Engineering, which I was honored to be asked to do. That was probably the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done because you know, it's their graduation, right? It's a, it's a moment, it's a memory for them. So I really, I took a lot of time writing that one down. Normally I don't write speeches down. I bullet points or you know, notes. I actually wrote that one out because I wanted to make sure it was um, really good for them. But in general, more of a bullet points, um, you know, hit the hot topics. I like to do speeches that are um, engaging and interactive and a little funny if I can make them just to keep the audience excited. I will throw out a random question sometimes looking for a response or I might throw out a thought provoking comment to make, a, to, to make the audience think for a moment or throw out a funny story just to make sure that I can get a laugh out of them to make sure they're awake. Try to keep it interesting, try to keep it fun, not too serious. Um, honestly, most of the stuff I'm doing in the either SWE, the diversity space, bias, those kind of topics, you can keep a little bit lighter. Um, I'm not really giving a lot of, really rarely giving speeches on anything very heavily technical, you know, related to work or, or the industry, which, you know, might not allow some of that flexibility. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna use some of your tips because I'm actually yeah. going to. So you, it's funny you mentioned those those, those locals that are mm -hmm. happening that 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 sweet puts on. I'm actually gonna be speaking at one tomorrow. Oh, you're gonna be. Oh, it's great. So you're in San Diego. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yep. So <laughs> I'm gonna try to be as interactive as their former president. Perfect. <laughs> All right. So I know you you did mention this that when you first started public speaking, you used to get nervous. Like, do you still get nervous? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? I, you know, it's funny. I do get nervous. I'd say my body gets nervous more than my mind. So mentally I'm fine, but for some reason my body still reflects the nerves and um, I've learned to just deal with it by honestly being very cognizant of what I'm wearing. Um, I tend to get a little red and blotchy, so I will try not to wear anything, you know, to you know, low cut or revealing. If I'm going to be up in a group, I might wear something with a higher neck. 
or you know some sleeves rather than sleeveless or a jacket because really it's my body reflecting my nervousness that's not really mentally there anymore and I still haven't figured out how to get past that hmm. interesting yeah I, I don't have any ideas for that I've never been red and blotchy a day of my life <laughs> <laughs> I think for rather obvious reasons <laughs> so this is this has been this has been a lot of fun, Jonna. Is there anything else that you'd like to to talk about based on you know the work that you're doing? I just want to encourage all your listeners to be confident and take a risk. Um, try public speaking, as you mentioned, is not normal for engineers. We're not it's not something we're taught in school. So take the risks. Um, practice because you'll never get any better if you don't practice. Absolutely, practice makes progress. Yep. So how can people contact you? Uh, so I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. Um, come see me at Jonna Gherkin at LinkedIn, uh, the usual way. Um, you can also find me uh, on Twitter um, and at Jonna Gherkin on Twitter. I've got a really great uh, following there, mostly around uh, diversity and inclusion and engineering topics. I would love to connect there as well. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>